Chapter Seven of the Deerslayer. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. The Deerslayer by James Fenimore Cooper. Chapter Seven. Clear, placid Leman, thy contrasted lake with the wild world I dwelt in is a thing which warns me, with its stillness, to forsake earth's troubled waters for a purer spring. This quiet sail is as a noiseless wing to waft me from distraction. Once I loved torn ocean's roar, but thy soft murmuring sounds sweet as if a sister's voice reproved, that I with stern delight should e'er have been so moved. Byron Day had fairly dawned before the young man, whom we have left in the situation described in the last chapter, again opened his eyes. This was no sooner done than he started up, and looked about him with the eagerness of one who suddenly felt the importance of accurately ascertaining his precise position. His rest had been deep and undisturbed, and when he awoke it was with a clearness of intellect and a readiness of resources that were very much needed at that particular moment. The sun had not risen, it is true, but the vault of heaven was rich with the winning softness that brings and shuts the day, while the whole air was filled with the carols of birds, the hymns of the feathered tribe. These sounds first told Deerslayer the risks he ran. The air, for wind it could scarce be called, was still light, it is true, but it had increased a little in the course of the night and as the canoes were feathers on the water they had drifted twice the expected distance, and, what was still more dangerous, had approached so near the base of the mountain that here rose precipitously from the eastern shore, as to render the carols of the birds plainly audible. This was not the worst. The third canoe had taken the same direction, and was slowly drifting towards a point where it must inevitably touch, unless turned aside by a shift of wind or human hands. In other respects nothing presented itself to attract attention, or to awaken alarm. The castle stood on its shoal, nearly abreast of the canoes, for the drift had amounted to miles in the course of the night, and the ark lay fastened to its piles as both had been left so many hours before. As a matter of course Deerslayer's attention was first given to the canoe ahead. It was already quite near the point, and a very few strokes of the paddle sufficed to tell him that it must touch before he could possibly overtake it. Just at this moment, too, the wind inopportunely freshened, rendering the drift of the light craft much more rapid than certain. Feeling the impossibility of preventing a contact with the land, the young man wisely determined not to heat himself with unnecessary exertions. But first looking to the priming of his piece, he proceeded slowly and warily towards the point, taking care to make a little circuit, that he might be exposed on only one side, as he approached. The canoe adrift, being directed by no such intelligence, pursued its proper way, and grounded on a small sunken rock, at the distance of three or four yards from the shore. Just at that moment Deerslayer had got abreast of the point, and turned the bows of his own boat to the land, first casting loose his toe, that his movements might be unencumbered. The canoe hung an instant to the rock, then it rose a hair's breadth on an almost imperceptible swell of the water, swung round, floated clear, and reached the strand. All this the young man noted, but it neither quickened his pulses nor hastened his hand. If any one had been lying in wait for the arrival of the waif, he must be seen, and the utmost caution in approaching the shore became indispensable. If no one was in ambush, 
hurry was unnecessary. The point being nearly diagonally opposite to the Indian encampment, he hoped the last, though the former was not only possible, but probable. For the savages were prompt in adopting all the expedients of their particular modes of warfare, and quite likely had many scouts searching the shores for craft to carry them off to the castle. As a glance at the lake from any height or projection would expose the smallest object on its surface, there was little hope that either of the canoes would pass unseen, and Indian sagacity needed no instruction to tell which way a boat or a log would drift, when the direction of the wind was known. As Deerslayer drew nearer and nearer to the land, the stroke of his paddle grew slower. His eye became more watchful, and his ears and nostrils almost dilated with the effort to detect any lurking danger. T'was a trying moment for a novice, nor was there the encouragement which even the timid sometimes feel when conscious of being observed and commended. He was entirely alone, thrown on his own resources, and was cheered by no friendly eye, emboldened by no encouraging voice. Notwithstanding all these circumstances, the most experienced veteran in forest warfare could not have behaved better. Equally free from recklessness and hesitation, his advance was marked by a sort of philosophical prudence that appeared to render him superior to all motives but those which were best calculated to effect his purpose. Such was the commencement of a career in forest exploits that afterwards rendered this man, in his way and under the limits of his habits and opportunities, as renowned as many a hero whose name has adorned the pages of works more celebrated than legends simple as ours can ever become. When about a hundred yards from the shore, Deerslayer rose in the canoe, gave three or four vigorous strokes with the paddle, sufficient of themselves to impel the bark to land, and then quickly laying aside the instrument of labor, he seized that of war. He was in the very act of raising the rifle, when a sharp report was followed by the buzz of a bullet that passed so near his body as to cause him involuntarily to start. The next instant Deerslayer staggered, and fell his whole length in the bottom of the canoe. A yell—it came from a single voice—followed, and an Indian leaped from the bushes upon the open area of the point, bounding towards the canoe. This was the moment the young man desired. He rose on the instant, and leveled his own rifle at his uncovered foe. But his finger hesitated about pulling the trigger on one whom he held at such a disadvantage. This little delay probably saved the life of the Indian, who bounded back into the cover as swiftly as he had broken out of it. In the meantime Deerslayer had been swiftly approaching the land, and his own canoe reached the point just as his enemy disappeared. As its movements had not been directed, it touched the shore a few yards from the other boat, and though the rifle of his foe had to be loaded, there was not time to secure his prize, and carry it beyond danger, before he would be exposed to another shot. Under the circumstances, therefore, he did not pause an instant, but dashed into the woods and sought a cover. On the immediate point there was a small open area, partly in native grass and partly beach but a dense fringe of bushes lined its upper side. This narrow belt of dwarf vegetation passed. One issued immediately into the high and gloomy vaults of the forest. The land was tolerably level for a few hundred feet, and then it rose precipitously in a mountainside. The trees were tall, large, and so free from underbrush that they resembled vast columns, irregularly scattered, upholding a dome of leaves. Although they stood tolerably close together, for their ages and size, 
the eye could penetrate to considerable distances, and bodies of men, even, might have engaged beneath their cover, with concert and intelligence. Deerslayer knew that his adversary must be employed in reloading, unless he had fled. The former proved to be the case, for the young man had no sooner placed himself behind a tree than he caught a glimpse of the arm of the Indian, his body being concealed by an oak, in the very act of forcing the leathered bullet home. Nothing would have been easier than to spring forward, and decide the affair by a close assault on his unprepared foe. But every feeling of Deerslayer revolted at such a step, although his own life had just been attempted from a cover. He was yet unpractised in the ruthless expedients of savage warfare, of which he knew nothing except by tradition and theory, and it struck him as unfair advantage to assail an unarmed foe. His color had heightened, his eye frowned, his lips were compressed, and all his energies were collected and ready. But, instead of advancing to fire, he dropped his rifle to the usual position of a sportsman, in readiness to catch his aim, and muttered to himself, unconscious that he was speaking, no no that may be redskin warfare but it's not a christian's gifts let the miscreant charge and then we'll take it out like men for the canoe he must not and shall not have no no let him have time to load and god will take care of the right all this time the indian had been so intent on his own movements that he was even ignorant that his enemy was in the woods his only apprehension was that the canoe would be recovered and carried away before he might be in readiness to prevent it. He had sought the cover from habit, but he was within a few feet of the fringe of bushes, and could be at the margin of the forest in readiness to fire in a moment. The distance between him and his enemy was about fifty yards, and the trees were so arranged by nature that the line of sight was not interrupted, except by the particular trees behind which each party stood. His rifle was no sooner loaded than the savage glanced around him and advanced incautiously as regarded the real, but stealthily as respected the fancied position of his enemy, until he was fairly exposed. Then Deerslayer stepped from behind its own cover, and hailed him. "'This away, Redskin! This away! If you're looking for me,' he called out. "'I'm young in war, but not so young as to stand on an open beach to be shot down like an owl by daylight. It rests on yourself whether it's peace or war atween us.' for my gifts are white gifts, and I'm not one of them that thinks it valiant to slay human mortals singly in the woods." The savage was a good deal startled by this sudden discovery of the danger he ran. He had a little knowledge of English, however, and caught the drift of the other's meaning. He was also too well schooled to betray alarm, but dropping the butt of his rifle to the earth, with an air of confidence, he made a gesture of lofty courtesy. All this was done with the ease and self-possession of one accustomed to consider no man his superior. In the midst of this consummate acting, however, the volcano that raged within caused his eyes to glare and his nostrils to dilate, like those of some wild beast that is suddenly prevented from taking the fatal leap. Two canoes,' he said in the deep guttural tones of his race, holding up the number of fingers he mentioned, by way of preventing mistakes. "'One for you?' one for me. No, no, Mingo, that will never do. You own neither, and neither shall you have as long as I can prevent it. I know it's war atween your people and mine, 
but that's no reason why human mortals should slay each other like savage creatures that meet in the woods. Go your way, then, and leave me to go mine. The world is large enough for us both, and when we meet fairly in battle, why, the Lord will order the fate of each of us." "'Good!' exclaimed the Indian. "'My brother missionary! Great talk! All about Manitou!' "'Not so, not so, warrior. I'm not good enough for the Moravians, and am too good for most of the other vagabonds that preach about in the woods. No, no, I'm only a hunter, as yet, though afore the peace is made tis like enough there'll be an occasion to strike a blow at some of your people. Still, I wish it to be done in fair fight, and not in a quarrel about the ownership of a miserable canoe." "'Good! My brother very young, but he is very wise, little warrior, great talker, chief sometimes in council." "'I don't know this, nor do I say it, Injun,' returned Deerslayer, colouring a little at the ill-concealed sarcasm of the other's manner. I look forward to a life in the woods, and I only hope it may be a peaceable one. All young men must go on the war-path, when there's occasion. But war isn't needfully massacre. I've seen enough of the last this very night to know that Providence frowns on it, and I now invite you to go your own way while I go mine, and hope that we may part friends. Good. My brother has two scalp. Gray hair under other. Old wisdom. Young tongue. Here the savage advanced with confidence, his hand extended, his face smiling, and his whole bearing denoting amity and respect. Deerslayer met his offered friendship in a proper spirit, and they shook hands cordially, each endeavouring to assure the other of his sincerity and desire to be at peace. "'All have his own,' said the Indian. "'My canoe, mine. Your canoe, yourn. Go look. If yourn, you keep. If mine, I keep. That's just, Redskin, though you must be wrong in thinking the canoe your property. Howsever, seein' is believin', and we'll go down to the shore, where you may look with your own eyes, for it's likely you'll object to trustin' altogether to mine." The Indian uttered his favorite exclamation of, Good! and then they walked side by side towards the shore. There was no apparent distrust in the manner of either, the Indian moving in advance, as if he wished to show his companion that he did not fear turning his back to him. As they reached the open ground, the former pointed towards Deerslayer's boat, and said emphatically, "'No mine, pale-face canoe. This red man's. No want other man's canoe. Want his own.' "'You're wrong, Redskin. You're altogether wrong. This canoe was left in old Hutter's keeping, and is hisn according to law, red or white, till its owner comes to claim it. Here's the seats and the stitching of the bark to speak for themselves. No man ever knowed an Injun to turn off such work. Good. My brother little old, big wisdom. Injun no make him. White man's work. I'm glad you think so, for holding out to the contrary might have made ill blood atween us, every one having a right to take possession of his own. I'll just shove the canoe out of reach of dispute at once, as the quickest way of settling difficulties. While Deerslayer was speaking, he put a foot against the end of the light boat, and giving a vigorous shove, he sent it out into the lake a hundred feet or more, where, taking the true current, it would necessarily float past the point, and be in no further danger of coming ashore. The savage started at this ready and decided expedient, and his companion saw that he cast a hurried and fierce glance at his own canoe, 
or that which contained the paddles. The change of manner, however, was but momentary, and then the Iroquois resumed his air of friendliness and a smile of satisfaction. "'Good!' he repeated with stronger emphasis than ever. "'Young head! Old mind! Know how to settle quarrel! Farewell, brother! He go to house in water muskrat house. Injun go to camp. Tell chiefs no find canoe.' Deerslayer was not sorry to hear this proposal, for he felt anxious to join the females, and he took the offered hand of the Indian very willingly. The parting words were friendly, and while the red man walked calmly towards the wood, with the rifle in the hollow of his arm, without once looking back in uneasiness or distrust, the white man moved towards the remaining canoe, carrying his piece in the same pacific manner. It is true, but keeping his eye fastened on the movements of the other. This distrust, however, seemed to be altogether uncalled for, and as if ashamed to have entertained it, the young man averted his look, and stepped carelessly up to his boat. Here he began to push the canoe from the shore, and to make his other preparations for departing. He might have been thus employed a minute, when happening to turn his face towards the land, his quick and certain eye told him, at a glance, the imminent jeopardy in which his life was placed. The black, ferocious eyes of the savage were glancing on him, like those of the crouching tiger, through a small opening in the bushes, and the muzzle of his rifle seemed already to be opening in a line with his own body. Then, indeed, the long practice of Deerslayer as a hunter did him good service. Accustomed to fire with the deer on the bound, and often when the precise position of the animal's body had in a manner to be guessed at, he used the same expedients here. To cock and poise his rifle were the acts of a single moment and a single motion. Then, aiming almost without sighting, he fired into the bushes where he knew a body ought to be, in order to sustain the appalling countenance which alone was visible. There was not time to raise the piece any higher, or to take a more deliberate aim. So rapid were his movements that both parties discharged their pieces at the same instant, the concussions mingling in one report. The mountains, indeed, gave back but a single echo. Deerslayer dropped his piece, and stood with head erect, steady as one of the pines in the calm of a June morning, watching the result. While the savage gave the yell that has become historical for its appalling influence, leaped through the bushes, and came bounding across the open ground, flourishing a tomahawk. Still Deerslayer moved not, but stood with his unloaded rifle fallen against his shoulders while with the hunter's habits his hands were mechanically feeling for the powder-horn and charger. When about forty feet from his enemy, the savage hurled his keen weapon, but it was with an eye so vacant, and a hand so unsteady and feeble, that the young man caught it by the handle as it was flying past him. That instant the Indian staggered and fell his whole length on the ground. "'I knowed it! I knowed it!' exclaimed Deerslayer who was already preparing to force a fresh bullet into his rifle. I knowed it must come to this, as soon as I had got the range from the creature's eyes. A man sights suddenly and fires quick when his own life's in danger. Yes, I knowed it would come to this. I was about the hundredth part of a second too quick for him, or it might have been bad for me. The reptile's bullet has just grazed my side. But say what you will, for or again him. A redskin is by no means as sartin with powder and ball as a white man. Their gifts don't seem to lie that away. Even Chingachgook, great as he is in other matters, isn't downright deadly with the rifle. 
By this time the piece was reloaded, and Deerslayer, after tossing the tomahawk into the canoe, advanced to his victim, and stood over him, leaning on his rifle, in melancholy attention. It was the first instance in which he had seen a man fall in battle. It was the first fellow-creature against whom he had ever seriously raised his own hand. The sensations were novel, and regret, with the freshness of our better feelings, mingled with his triumph. The Indian was not dead, though shot directly through the body. He lay on his back motionless, but his eyes, now full of consciousness, watched each action of his victor as the fallen bird regards the fowler, jealous of every movement. The man probably expected the fatal blow which was to precede the loss of his scalp, or perhaps he anticipated that this latter act of cruelty would precede his death. Deerslayer read his thoughts, and he found a melancholy satisfaction in relieving the apprehensions of the helpless savage. "'No, no, Redskin,' he said, "'you've nothing more to fear from me. I am of a Christian stock, and scalping is not of my gifts. I'll just make certain of your rifle, and then come back to do you what service I can. Though here I can't stay much longer, as the crack of three rifles will be apt to bring some of your devils down upon me.' The close of this was said in a sort of a soliloquy, as the young man went in quest of the fallen rifle. The piece was found where its owner had dropped it, and was immediately put into the canoe. Laying his own rifle at its side, Deerslayer then returned and stood over the Indian again. "'All enmity atween you and me's at an end, Redskin,' he said, "'and you may set your heart at rest on the score of the scalp, or any further injury. My gifts are white, as I've told you.' and I hope my conduct will be white also. Could looks have conveyed all they meant, it is probable that Deerslayer's innocent vanity on the subject of color would have been rebuked a little. But he comprehended the gratitude that was expressed in the eyes of the dying savage, without in the least detecting the bitter sarcasm that struggled with the better feeling. "'Water!' ejaculated the thirsty and unfortunate creature. "'Give poor Injun water!' "'Aye, water you shall have.' if you drink the lake dry. I'll just carry you down to it, that you may take your fill. This is the way, they tell me, with all wounded people. Water is their greatest comfort and delight." So saying, Deerslayer raised the Indian in his arms, and carried him to the lake. Here he first helped him to take an attitude in which he could appease his burning thirst, after which he seated himself on a stone, and took the head of his wounded adversary in his own lap and endeavored to soothe his anguish in the best manner he could. "'It would be sinful in me to tell you your time hadn't come, warrior,' he commenced. "'And therefore I'll not say it. You've passed the middle age already, and considering the sort of lives you lead, your days have been pretty well filled. The principal thing now is to look forward to what comes next. Neither red-skin nor pale-face on the whole calculates much on sleepin' forever. But both expect to live in another world. Each has his gifts, and will be judged by em. And I suppose you've thought these matters over enough not to stand in need of sermons when the trial comes. You'll find your happy hunting-grounds, if you've been a just injun. If an unjust, you'll meet your desarts in another way. I've my own ideas about these things, but you're too old and experienced to need any explanations from one as young as I. "'Good!' ejaculated the Indian, whose voice retained its depth, even as life ebbed away. "'Young head! Old wisdom!' 
It's sometimes a consolation, when the end comes, to know that them we've harmed, or tried to harm, forgive us. I suppose nature seeks this relief, by way of getting a pardon on earth. As we never can know whether he pardons, who is all in all, till judgment itself comes. It's soothing to know that any pardon at such times. And that, I conclude, is the secret. Now, as for myself, I overlook altogether your designs again my life. First, because no harm came of em. Next, because it's your gifts, and nature, and trainin', and I ought not to have trusted you at all. And finally, and chiefly, because I can bear no ill-will to a dying man, whether heathen or Christian. So put your heart at ease, so far as I'm concerned. You know best what other matters ought to trouble you, or what ought to give you satisfaction in so trying a moment. It is probable that the Indian had some of the fearful glimpses of the unknown state of being which God, in mercy, seems at times to afford to all the human race, but they were necessarily in conformity with his habits and prejudices. Like most of his people, and like too many of our own, he thought more of dying in a way to gain applause among those he left than to secure a better state of existence hereafter. While Deerslayer was speaking, his mind was a little bewildered though he felt that the intention was good. And when he had done, a regret passed over his spirit that none of his own tribe were present to witness his stoicism, under extreme bodily suffering, and the firmness with which he met his end. With the high innate courtesy that so often distinguishes the Indian warrior before he becomes corrupted by too much intercourse with the worst class of the white men, he endeavored to express his thankfulness for the other's good intentions and to let him understand that they were appreciated. "'Good,' he repeated, for this was an English word much used by the savages. "'Good. Young head. Young heart, too. Old heart tough. No shed tear. Hear Indian when he die, and no want to lie. What he call him?' "'Deerslayer is the name I bear now.' though the Delawares have said that when I get back from this warpath I shall have a more manly title, provided I can earn one. That good name for boy, poor name for warrior. He get better quick. No fear there, the savage had strength sufficient under the strong excitement he felt to raise a hand and tap the young man on his breast. Eye sartin, finger lightning, aim death. Great warrior soon. No deer slayer. Hawkeye, Hawkeye, Hawkeye. Shake hand. Deerslayer, or Hawkeye, as the youth was then first named, for in after years he bore the appellation throughout all that region, Deerslayer took the hand of the savage, whose last breath was drawn in that attitude, gazing in admiration at the countenance of a stranger, who had shown so much readiness, skill, and firmness, in a scene that was equally trying and novel. When the reader remembers it is the highest gratification an Indian can receive to see his enemy betray weakness, he will be better able to appreciate the conduct which had extorted so great a concession at such a moment. "'His spirit has fled,' said Deerslayer, in a suppressed melancholy voice. "'Ah's me! Well, to this we must all come, sooner or later. And he is happiest, let his skin be what color it may, who is best fitted to meet it. Here lies the body of no doubt a brave warrior and the soul is already flying towards its heaven or hell, whether that be a happy hunting-ground, a place scant of game, regions of glory, according to Moravian doctrine, or flames of fire. 
So it happens, too, as regards other matters. Here have old Hutter and Hurry Harry got themselves into difficulty, if they haven't got themselves into torment and death, and all for a bounty that luck offers to me in what many would think a lawful and suitable manner. But not a farthing of such money shall cross my hand. White I was born, and white will I die, clinging to color to the last, even though the King's Majesty, his governors, and all his councils, both at home and in the colonies, forget from what they come, and where they hope to go, and all for a little advantage in warfare. No, no, warrior, hand of mine shall never molest your scalp, and so your soul may rest in peace on the pint of making a decent appearance when the body comes to join it in your own land of spirits." Deerslayer arose as soon as he had spoken. Then he placed the body of the dead man in a sitting posture, with its back against the little rock, taking the necessary care to prevent it from falling or in any way settling into an attitude that might be thought unseemly by the sensitive, though wild notions of a savage. When this duty was performed, the young man stood gazing at the grim countenance of his fallen foe, in a sort of melancholy abstraction. As was his practice, however, a habit gained by living so much alone in the forest, he then began again to give utterance to his thoughts and feelings aloud. "'I didn't wish your life, Redskin,' he said. "'But you left me no choice atween killing or being killed. Each party acted according to his gifts, I suppose, and blame can light on neither. You were treacherous, according to your nature in war, and I was a little oversightful, as I'm apt to be in trusting others. Well, this is my first battle with a human mortal, though it's not likely to be the last. I have fought most of the creatures of the forest, such as bears, wolves, painters, and catamounts. But this is the beginning with the redskins. If I was Injun-born now, I might tell of this, or carry in the scalp, and boast of the exploit before the whole tribe. Or, if my enemy had only been even a bear, twould have been natural and proper to let everybody know what had happened. But I don't well see how I'm to let even Chingachgook into this secret, so long as it can be done only by boasting with a white tongue. And why should I wish to boast of it, after all? It's slaying a human, although he was a savage. And how do I know that he was a just Injun, and that he has not been taken away suddenly to anything but happy hunting-grounds? When it's uncertain whether good or evil has been done, the wisest way is not to be boastful. Still, I should like Chingachgook to know that I haven't discredited the Delawares, or my training." Part of this was uttered aloud, while part was merely muttered between the speaker's teeth, his more confident opinions enjoying the first advantage while his doubts were expressed in the latter mode. Soliloquy and reflection received a startling interruption, however, by the sudden appearance of a second Indian on the lake shore, a few hundred yards from the point. This man, evidently another scout, who had probably been drawn to the place by the reports of the rifles, broke out of the forest with so little caution that Deerslayer caught a view of his person before he was himself discovered. When the latter event did occur, as was the case a moment later, the savage gave a loud yell, which was answered by a dozen voices from different parts of the mountainside. There was no longer any time for delay. In another minute the boat was quitting the shore under long and steady sweeps of the paddle. As soon as Deerslayer believed himself to be at a safe distance, he ceased his efforts, permitting the little bark to drift, while he leisurely took a survey of the state of things. The canoe first sent adrift was floating before the air, quite a quarter of a mile above him, 
and a little nearer to the shore than he wished, now that he knew more of the savages were so near at hand. The canoe shoved from the point was within a few yards of him, he having directed his own course towards it on quitting the land. The dead Indian lay in grim quiet where he had left him. The warrior who had shown himself from the forest had already vanished, and the woods themselves were as silent and seemingly deserted as the day they came fresh from the hands of their great Creator. This profound stillness, however, lasted but a moment. When time had been given to the scouts of the enemy to reconnoitre, they burst out of the thicket upon the naked point, filling the air with yells of fury at discovering the death of their companion. These cries were immediately succeeded by shouts of delight when they reached the body and clustered eagerly around it. Deerslayer was a sufficient adept in the usages of the natives to understand the reason of the change. The yell was the customary lamentation at the loss of a warrior, the shout a sign of rejoicing that the conqueror had not been able to secure the scalp. The trophy, without which a victory is never considered complete. The distance at which the canoes lay probably prevented any attempts to injure the conqueror, the American Indian, like the panther of his own woods, seldom making any effort against his foe, unless tolerably certain it is under circumstances that may be expected to prove effective. As the young man had no longer any motive to remain near the point, he prepared to collect his canoes, in order to tow them off to the castle. That nearest was soon in tow, when he proceeded in quest of the other, which was all this time floating up the lake. The eye of Deerslayer was no sooner fastened on this last boat, then it struck him that it was nearer to the shore than it would have been had it merely followed the course of the gentle current of air. He began to suspect the influence of some unseen current in the water, and he quickened his exertions in order to regain possession of it before it could drift into a dangerous proximity to the woods. On getting nearer he thought that the canoe had a perceptible motion through the water, and as it lay broadside to the air that this motion was taking it towards the land. A few vigorous strokes of the paddle carried him still nearer, when the mystery was explained. Something was evidently in motion on the off side of the canoe, or that which was farthest from himself, and closer scrutiny showed that it was a naked human arm. An Indian was lying in the bottom of the canoe and was propelling it slowly but certainly to the shore, using his hand as a paddle. Deerslayer understood the whole artifice at a glance. A savage had swum off to the boat while he was occupied with his enemy on the point, got possession, and was using these means to urge it to the shore. Satisfied that the man in the canoe could have no arms, Deerslayer did not hesitate to dash close alongside of the retiring boat, without deeming it necessary to raise his own rifle. As soon as the wash of the water which he made in approaching became audible to the prostrate savage, the latter sprang to his feet and uttered an exclamation that proved how completely he was taken by surprise. "'If you've enjoyed yourself enough in that canoe, Redskin,' Deerslayer coolly observed, stopping his own career in sufficient time to prevent an absolute collision between the two boats, "'if you've enjoyed yourself enough in that canoe, you'll do a prudent act by taking to the lake again. I'm reasonable in these matters, and don't crave your blood.' though there's them that would look upon you more as a do-bill for the bounty than a human mortal. Take to the lake this minute, afore we get to hot words." The savage was one of those who did not understand a word of English, and he was indebted to the gestures of Deerslayer and to the expression of an eye that did not often deceive, for an imperfect comprehension of his meaning. 
Perhaps, too, the sight of the rifle that lay so near the hand of the white man quickened his decision. At all events he crouched like a tiger about to take his leap, uttered a yell, and the next instant his naked body disappeared in the water. When he rose to take breath it was at the distance of several yards from the canoe, and the hasty glance he threw behind him denoted how much he feared the arrival of a fatal messenger from the rifle of his foe. But the young man made no indication of any hostile intention. Deliberately securing the canoe to the others, he began to paddle from the shore, and by the time the Indian reached the land, and had shaken himself like a spaniel on quitting the water, his dreaded enemy was already beyond rifle-shot on his way to the castle. As was so much his practice, Deerslayer did not fail to soliloquize on what had just occurred, while steadily pursuing his course towards the point of destination. "'Well, well,' he commenced. "'Twould have been wrong to kill a human mortal without an object. Scalps are of no account with me, and life is sweet, and ought not to be taken mercilessly by them that have white gifts. The savage was a Mingo, it's true, and I make no doubt he is and will be as long as he lives, a rail, reptile, and vagabond. But that's no reason I should forget my gifts and color. No, no. Let him go. If ever we meet again, rifle in hand, why then twill be seen which has the stoutest heart and the quickest eye. Hawkeye. That's not a bad name for a warrior, sounding much more manful and valiant than Deerslayer. T'wouldn't be a bad title to begin with, and it has been fairly earned. If t'was Chingachgook now, he might go home and boast of his deeds, and the chiefs would name him Hawkeye in a minute. But it don't become white blood to brag, and it isn't easy to see how the matter can be known unless I do. Well, well, everything is in the hands of Providence, this affair as well as another. I'll trust to that for getting my desarts in all things." Having thus betrayed what might be termed his weak spot, the young man continued to paddle in silence, making his way diligently, and as fast as his toes would allow him, towards the castle. By this time the sun had not only risen, but it had appeared over the eastern mountains, and was shedding a flood of glorious light on this as yet unchristened sheet of water. The whole scene was radiant with beauty, and no one unaccustomed to the ordinary history of the woods would fancy it had so lately witnessed incidents so ruthless and barbarous. As he approached the building of old Hutter, Deerslayer thought, or rather felt, that its appearance was in singular harmony with all the rest of the scene. Although nothing had been consulted but strength and security, the rude massive logs, covered with their rough bark, the projecting roof, and the form, would contribute to render the building picturesque, in almost any situation, while its actual position added novelty and piquancy to its other points of interest. When Deerslayer drew nearer to the castle, however, objects of interest presented themselves that at once eclipsed any beauties that might have distinguished the scenery of the lake and the site of the singular edifice. Judith and Hetty stood on the platform before the door, Hurry's dooryard awaiting his approach with manifest anxiety the former from time to time taking a survey of his person and of the canoes through the old ship's spy-glass that has been already mentioned. Never probably did this girl seem more brilliantly beautiful than at that moment, the flush of anxiety and alarm increasing her color to its richest tints, while the softness of her eyes, a charm that even poor Hetty shared with her, was deepened by intense concern. Such, at least, without pausing or pretending to analyze motives, or to draw any other very nice distinction between cause and effect, were the opinions of the young man as his canoes reached the side of the ark, 
where he carefully fastened all three before he put his foot on the platform. End of chapter 7 Recording by Bill Borst